being reasonable. Now heard on WHUPLP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we first speak with Dr. Alicia Myers, biblical scholar who teaches New Testament and Greek at Campbell University. Dr. Myers sits down with us to discuss some of her beliefs. Next, we speak with comedian and Hillsborian Jeremy Alder. Jeremy discusses increasing self-awareness through understanding how personal desires drive beliefs. But first up, Dr. Alicia Myers, biblical scholar who teaches New Testament and Greek at Campbell University. I grew up in the Midwest and then spending quite a bit of time in the South now, there is this association between more complete womanhood, like what it means to be a woman, is caught up with expectations of motherhood. So, for example, anecdotally, I have a number of women students at school, and my students are average in age 37, so I'll have some that are just out of college um, and some who are a little bit older, but many of whom are single. And when they're interviewing for jobs at churches, a lot of them will ask questions about, oh, well, but you're not a mother yet. And there's this assumption that they haven't somehow reached adulthood because they aren't married and because they don't have children. (laughs) I remember being pregnant and going to church, and that was when I was, like, the most welcomed (laughs) because they were like... She has a child. Um, and so those are anecdotally, but you can, you also find it just in Roman history, but also West, history of Western society, this association, expectation that girls will become mothers. And if they don't, something's wrong with them. In traditional Christianity, not just Christianity, many religions, it would seem that often the worth of a female yeah. could be judged by their status in the sense of are they married or their fertility, in the sense of how many kids or are they having kids, and not other things like more intellectual pursuits, maybe? Right, because that's not what they're supposed to be doing. Or there's an assumption they couldn't do that anyway. So you're studying this in Christian yeah, churches? Yeah, I'm studying this through Greco-Roman antiquity. Really, the time span that I'm looking at is like the Hellenistic era, so around 300 BC to about Two to three hundred CE. Oh, so not modern. Yeah, yeah, but this it, is all. But okay. it has it has threads that connect to contemporary context, especially for my students or for um, folks who've maybe grown up um, in contexts that really pressure this kind of identity of motherhood and that they have to do it, which is incredibly challenging for women who struggle with: um, Do they even want to get married? Do they want to be in a heterosexual marriage? Do they want? 
to have children or are they able to have children? Things like that. Like they well, what get do you think the state this. of it, it is today as far as for, for women? I know Christianity is a big, yeah. maybe generally speaking. I still think there's still an emphasis on it. Obviously, more conservative context for sure. But even through, I would say, mainline Christianity, there's just really an overriding assumption that women will become mothers. And if they don't, something's wrong. Like I said, the, I still have women students who are feel very pressured with this. And I've actually counseled male students too, who've been struggling to have children or their understandings of their own masculinity in that context. But I've focused my research on women and motherhood. Where does that come from? Does it come from certain passages? Does it come from mm-hmm. a general culture? Does it come from the longstanding need to procreate? Where is this deriving from? So in an ancient context, it was, you know, the writings we have are powerful men whose writings have survived. So they're the ones who are able to write and they're going to write in ways that reinforce their own superiority. So So the guys are making the rules. Right. And so they see themselves as superior and they say, well, why do we have women? And so like Galen will talk about, he's a second century physician and, and he's a good physician. He's in the emperor's household and everything. And he writes, you know, why would nature so-called, create half the species mutilated, as it were. By mutilated, he means lacking a penis. So being, oh, being female okay. gotcha. yeah, 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 <laughs> is yeah. this mutilation. And <laughs> right, he says, right, right. well, nature would only do that for reproduction because otherwise it'd be a failure of nature and that he can't stand that. So he says that, you know, the female of the species, her whole purpose is reproduction because that is the closest a man can come as immortality is achieving regeneration reproduction through the woman. So uh, I could, yes, I can see male writing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a lot of that. Does that um, come from the Bible itself? So you can find an emphasis on reproduction, of course, in Genesis, right? So in these accounts of um, God tells humanity, be fruitful and multiply. And there is this emphasis on women wanting to have children. So you have the matriarchal stories of Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah struggles to have a child. And so there's this, you know, will God show up and enable this miraculous conception? It continues in the New Testament, too. You have Elizabeth, who's Mary's relative. We don't know how they're related. But she kind of, her life replays the Abraham-Sarah cycle because Both her and her husband are really old, but they're righteous. And God promises Zechariah, you're going to have a child through Elizabeth. And he's like, oh, how? Um, And once Elizabeth has John the Baptist, that's who she conceives and bears, um, the town says that God has taken away her shame. Well, if it's written throughout the Bible, and as it seems it is, both Old and New Testament, why should we rock the boat now? (laughs) Um. It is written throughout the Bible, but it's not always consistent. So this is one thing that sometimes people believe the Bible should be completely consistent and only having like a one message and one cloth. When we approach the Bible as a single book, we might come at it that way. But if you remember that it's made up of all these different books that could be the product of multiple authors and multiple editions being collected over thousands of years and so on and so forth. So there's diversity of perspectives within the biblical accounts. And, and you know, valorizing motherhood as this, this is the ultimate, you know, purpose of femininity, mm-hmm. you can see the positives of that because it gives purpose for 
the difficulty of pregnancy and the difficulty of childbirth, right? It, it ascribes value to that. So if you do survive those experiences, you could see how that, that could be good for somebody. You could see how it could be negative as well. So it seems like the reason why we're okay with not following that now is that there are a lot of books in the Bible. They've been written at different mm-hmm. times. And it's inconsistent. There's not really a consistent thread that says that. Yeah, I think it's, at least when biblical scholars read the Bible, we're, we're reading, like, what are these stories in context? Like, who are, they, who are they speaking to and what's the message? And is the message really women need to have babies? Now, <laughs> no, I'm right, exactly. Sometimes, sometimes no. And I really don't mean this to come across as flippant or anything like that. But if we can say that about what the Bible says about motherhood, mm-hmm. what's to stop us saying that about anything? Well, yeah, like I can give you a diversity of perspectives on why do bad things happen to good people, right? So the question of why is there evil gets answered differently in the Bible in different places. Like, is there a purpose to suffering? Um, if you read Ecclesiastes, no, <laughs> it's just life life has crap in it and you have to deal with it. Um, but if you read First Peter, First Peter is going to say, no, suffering, you learn through suffering and God uses suffering to educate you, right? Right. And if you look at the Old Testament, forget about it. It's quite a bit of suffering. Right. But sometimes <laughs> it's also considered purposeful and sometimes not. So what we would consider historical books about why did Israel get sent off into exile? Well, these books will say, well, because they... They deserved it. They didn't fulfill their end of the covenant. But when we're following the Bible at that point, or Bibles, what are we following? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and why should any of it be authoritative? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually deal with this with my students quite a bit at the beginning of the semester, and I'll talk about, you know, it's hermeneutics, which is our big fancy word for how do you read the Bible and why do you read the Bible? Um, and... I'll talk to them about, you know, we have pre-modern readings, modern readings, post-modern readings, and I will try to help them kind of understand how they approach the Bible and why, which is really a post-modern thing to do. Um, And my goal is to sink them deep into context and to say um, contextually what's going on. So I worked in the New Testament. So as much as we can kind of approximate the first century Roman world, how can that help us understand what's happening in these writings? And then let's translate these writings for what they have for meaning today. And for my students, especially those who want this kind of apologetic, no, like, tell me, like, in one sentence, why must the Bible be authoritative? Um, and I tell them, you know, if you come to the Bible with an expectation of faith and that you you find it guidance in there that's inspired and helpful, it will stay that way. But it's not necessarily going to convince you of that on its own. So if we are reading the Bible in its context and the stories in their context, what is the Bible giving us that, say, other ancient texts are not giving us? Mm-hmm. I think it depends on what, what the topic was. For as not great as the New Testament portrays women, and there are some really bad passages, like in 1 Timothy where it says women will be saved through childbearing. Like it's just a problem passage. And I think of passages, I think of like Leviticus, where women are stoned for a variety of reasons. Oh, yeah. Right. So Old Testament, New Testament. So you have to remember there's no DNA test in the ancient world. And if they're worried about property and lineage, 
then the only thing they can physically see is if a woman's pregnant. And so I'm not saying it justifies it, but contextually, this is this harsher tr- treatment of the woman. So why is it important that we follow the Bible? Mm-hmm. Because it seems that there's very good things written, and there yeah. seems there are pretty awful things written, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. What is it that we're gaining? What information do we have that we couldn't, A, get another place, yeah, or B... Yeah couldn't satisfy with another source. Yeah, no, I think it's fair. With New Testament, um, for like, as not enough and not as sufficient, they're not, like the household codes and these things about what wives should do, they're not sufficient for us. But comparing these writings with other writings of the time, they actually give women much more freedom and prioritize them in a way that's that's not, that Romans wouldn't have done um, in the time period. So on the one hand, you can see, I mean, Christianity, early Christianity gets um, cast off for being a, a religion of women and slaves. And part of that is you can see that in the writing because there's writing that actually addresses women and slaves directly, which isn't something other writings would have done. Um, and also these writings are, like them or not, they're a part of the fabric of Western society. Mm-hmm. So in order to understand who we are as a people today and the ways you know, some cultural assumptions that we have or that we continue to act out. Um, understanding biblical texts and their context and their reception history helps us understand better who we are and how we got to where we are today. But if I wanted to use the book as a guide to how to live, mm-hmm. is that still follow? Yeah, I, th- I think you can, but you have to interpret it, I would say, contextually instead of just using it like willy-nilly and grab-bagging quotations out and throwing them at things. Um, Like, you know, that might work for a Band-Aid for now, but as life goes on, you're going to need some more meat there. Let's say Tanya is sitting next to you, and Tanya is Hindu. Yeah. And she practices her religion, and from all our accounts, she seems like a nice person, and she is a moral person, and she... Presumably is getting the way she is behaving from somewhere. Mm -hmm. What does it say, the fact that we can figure out how to live well Mm -hmm. from the Bible or Mm -hmm. from other texts? Yeah, and I think that that's absolutely valid. I do think it's, you know, it is true that so Indian society, though there are really early Christian traditions within Wisdom. Indian society, especially like Thomas traditions, um, that, you know, I'm not an expert in Indian culture. So I don't know all the texts that would have helped to shape that society. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it is a different perspective. But um, so a colleague of mine, Caleb Oladipo, uh, he is our professor of mission. He and I talk about this quite a bit because he runs the um, World Religions and Global Culture Center. So this is something he talks about with his students all the time. And he says, you know, what's the point of knowing who God is? And for a lot of our students raised in like Baptist context, you know, you believe in Jesus so you don't go to hell, right? Like I, this is my get out of, this is my fire insurance card. Um, and if you approach it from that context, right, then, then, the idea is, oh, I need to convert Tanya, right? I need to save her from hell. I see. Right? But no, that's not actually, actually, that's that's not the message we get if we have more of a holistic view of Christianity. The, the point of knowing who God is, is to glorify God and to experience God's love and to love others. Caleb will say, if the goal of 
humanity is to glorify God, then there can be many ways to glorify God. And if God is truly universal, that means when I travel somewhere and I meet somebody else practicing their faith, I'm not bringing God to them, but I'm learning how God is already there. So on the other side of you is Sarah. And Sarah (laughs) is an... My sister, no. (laughs) Oh, I can use a different name if you'd like. (laughs) And Sarah is an atheist. Uh She doesn't practice any religion and doesn't believe in God. She, by all accounts, she's a nice person, as charitable as other people and dependable as other people. Then what are we saying about Sarah's beliefs in the context of what the Bible is bringing to us? You can approach the biblical text as like a historical document and and an interesting ethical document, which is... I mean, you find a really long history of that. That's just enlightenment readings of the Bible. Where is Sarah getting her values from? Oh, probably from culture, right? We have a very particular to Western deistic Christianity kind of an American culture um, that, you know, has similarities to more ancient forms of Christianity, right? And you're supposed to be nice to other people, though American, it's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. Um, maybe Sarah believes in that. Maybe Sarah doesn't. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I think for her, it would be more like the biblical text isn't. It's an interesting anthropological document, even if it's not theologically driven. Okay. Right? For me personally, it's a it's a theological document because it's you know that's my own experience. So in this way, I'm kind of what. So all my Methodist friends out there, I'm pretty Wesleyan in that. So John Wesley is the founder of Methodism, and he says, you know, it's not it's not just scripture. You don't just read the Bible and that's it. It's scripture, reason, like your own reason that you're given, experience, your life experiences, and then tradition. And it's all these things. You know, this is Wesley saying, I'm like, it's all these things mixing together to help you understand what he would term theology. And then what helps you choose when you're mm-hmm. trying to mix, you know, theology and, yeah. and scripture and experience experience yeah. and what, what are you using as your yardstick to make those decisions, you think? Um, people I trust, I would say authorities that I trust, um, other people that I read and talk to. I do read scripture. I try to read it in a way that is honoring of the ancient context first, instead of just assuming a contemporary one. I don't, I mean, and I would say, I would always come back to that hermeneutic of love. That seems to me the most divine concept. It's accumulation of a bunch of subjective things. It's not one objective. Is the Bible true? Oh, gosh, it depends on how you define true, right? Well, in an objective sense. Now, what does that mean? So, for example... (laughs) There are a number of lights on that electric string right Right, there. yeah, yeah. There are either an even or odd number of lights. I don't mm-hmm. know what the answer is. Presumably you do not either. But there is an answer there. There's a truth. Yeah, yeah. And if we counted them, mm-hmm. we could find out what the answer is. And that answer would be true mm-hmm. regardless if I was living, whether mm-hmm. you were living, whether I existed, you existed. Mm-hmm. That is a true objective statement. Mm-hmm. That's what the Bible true in that kind of objective sense? Um, I guess it's, to me, asking that question is kind of the same of asking, is a poem true? Because the question of 
like what is the number of lights on the string, even or odd, is a very different question. And the thing we're looking at is, you know, a concrete physical thing. Presumably, when we're reading the Bible, we're getting to something that is true. Are we not? Yeah, but if the ultimate goal of biblical text is to reveal something about God, who is non-physical and unlike the rest of everything outside of time and transcendent, then at some point it has to drift into metaphor and analogy. How do you know that (laughs) non-physical things Uh are true? Yeah. I can't prove them with physical means. Right. If something is non-physical, presumably it expresses itself in a physical way to know that it exists. So can it be measured? I'm, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think you can measure God. Like, I can't put in like a spirit temperature and say, oh, the Holy Spirit's here. <laughs> right. Is there any um, way to know that? This entity, this thing, this object, mm-hmm. whatever you want to ascribe mm-hmm. to it, exists. I, I'm going to say no. I can't prove that God exists. And in this, I would differ from, you know, many other Christians, certainly. They might be very frustrated with me saying that. Um, but, like, Thomas Aquinas would say, you know, I have this, like, teleological argument. All these different arguments of cause and effect and things like that. Um, but I think it's interesting that we... We first define, in order for something to be true, it must have a physical manifestation. And that, in and of itself, is a statement of belief. Then you're saying that, in order for something to be true, it must be physically manifest. And that's a modern concept. If something's not physically manifested, can we show that it doesn't exist, that it's false? Not necessarily. And I would say that the majority of particularly ancient thought, wouldn't, it doesn't start from that premise that there has to be a physical representation. So in a lot of ways, when we're asking biblical texts to do that, to give us like to be true in the way we want it to be true, it, it can't because it's like asking Paul to write me an email, right? Like St. Paul cannot write me an email because he's like, what the heck are you talking about? So I, that's part of the, the translation sticking point. Here's the question, in a bigger sense, Mm -hmm. not just with you, with anything. Mm -hmm. If an entity, a thing, doesn't have a physical manifestation and can't be shown to be false, Mm -hmm. can't be shown to be not true, is there a utility to believing in that thing? I can say that again if that's confusing. Why believe? If you can't prove it or disprove it, why believe in it? If there's not a way to show that it exists, and there's not a way to show that it doesn't exist, is it useful to believe in that thing? I mean, I think this is where we get back to Wesley with kind of like this combination, and particularly like the most loose one is experience, right? And so certain people would say to you, like, I have this concrete physical experience of my encounter with who God is. And so I know, I know this is what it feels like when God shows up for me. Yeah. Um, and people will ascribe physicality to that. And I have a number of students, particularly if they've been versed, like if they're from a charismatic tradition, they have language to describe what mm-hmm. they 
what for them is a very sincere experience sure. and tradition of how God interacts with them. For other students, I, they don't have that. I wasn't raised in that context, so I don't easily ascribe to that language. But that wouldn't mean that I have never had a charismatic experience that I couldn't look back on my life and say, no, I really think I can't prove it to anybody else, but I feel very deeply that God showed up there. And for those people who do have that experience, and I've talked to several people who do, is personal experience a reliable way to know whether something is true? Mm-hmm. I think I mean, in so many ways, at the end of the day, that's all we got, right? I mean, maybe I'm getting a too little existentialistic here, but like this idea of like, right, at the dark night of the soul, that's, that's who I've got. Um, so I do think personal experience does matter, but it shouldn't, it's not only personal experience, right? That community is also important. Well, that's when kind of when I went off on that tangent about truths that are objective that we can, I can see that you can see that a computer can see if we're mm-hmm. not here. Right. When truth becomes subjective, mm-hmm. is it still truth? Yeah, I, I still think that's a modern question because I, I don't, I think that like when truth becomes subjective, I just wonder. Are there false truths? I'm just trying no, to. I'm, just, I'm actually uh, <laughs> just trying to think like, would an ancient person think in those terms subjective versus objective truth? And like, I think I'm still in my brain hung up on how are we defining truth? Because like, right, you can communicate truth through a fictional story. So we're reading Harry Potter with my second grader mm-hmm. right now. And so there's truths communicated through Harry Potter. The whole story's made up. Right? Yeah. But there are truths in Harry Potter in so far as like the value of friendship, the importance of feeling of belonging, of having a sense of belonging o- over against isolation and um, these ideas of um, there's the line that Dumbledore has. My husband loves it. Where it's like there's a difference between choosing what's right and choosing what's easy. I mean, that's what Plato's <laughs> Republic's all about, right? So using your example, <laughs> yeah. how is the Bible different from Harry Potter? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a lot older. It's got a lot of um, history to it and a lot of people, I would say, communally over a vast amount of time um, have found within it um, glimpses of what they would consider the divine. So Harry Potter, and I've never read Harry Potter. Single author, recent. <laughs> but from what you're telling me, Harry Potter has some wonderful themes about togetherness and about what it's like to be alone. And and this is, um, it, whatever I'm telling you about Harry Potter is based off the first movie. Um, and uh, <laughs> Don't drink unicorn's blood. <laughs> yeah, and uh, something about magic trains. I don't know, but what... <laughs> But what, but what, uh, but it seems like it's, you could learn a lot from how to behave in Harry Potter. And it seems that you could learn a lot how to behave from the Bible. Right. And so the fundamental difference we're talking about here between Harry Potter and the Bible is the. Well, I would say antiquity of communities. That it's older. No, like deep antiquity of communities that have found within these writings glimpses of the divine. So that it's not just one person's, it's not a product of one person's reflection. Um, 
It's also not written to be mass marketed like Harry Potter was. You know, like there's so many other like little differences. Um, but this idea that over an incredibly lengthy period of time and at much cost to themselves, these varieties of communities have felt like there's there's something more here and we're we're going to collect these things and keep them um, because they show us a bit of who God is. For me, that sets it apart. There's something. Yeah, there's something special about that. Um, and somebody could say, "Well, the same thing's true of, of just the Torah, right? Just the Jewish, or just the Tanakh, just the Jewish Bible." I say, "Absolutely." Or another sacred set of writings, and I would say, "Absolutely." Um, maybe pretty predictably, growing up in the United States, like. The writings that I'm exposed to in, in my context have been the biblical canon, particularly Christianized version. So that's where my experiences have drawn me. But if I think God is active everywhere, then why, why couldn't you glimpse divine in other places? We continue our conversation with Dr. Alicia Myers, biblical scholar who teaches New Testament and Greek at Campbell University, Coming up after this short break. Some say that I'm hard to know. You didn't know me a long time ago. I was weightless, even though I was downcast. No, I traveled every road to every town, I suppose. But if there's one place I can't find, it's the past. If suddenly I've disappeared, nothing to be feared. I'm going back to Dundee by the North Sea. If suddenly I can't be found, no, I'm safe, safe and sound in the West End of Dundee. I'm going back to Dundee by the 
can be found No, I'm safe, safe and sound Right. I think maybe I'm, com- I'm conflating two ideas you're presenting in my head. One is whether something has a glimpse of divinity in yeah. it and the age of something. Yeah. And how old it is. Are you telling me both of those together or is it? Yeah, or, okay. both of them together. I mean, I think the the value placed upon the writings <laughs> leads to their preservation, which I think it's a bit difficult for us to appreciate how hard it was to preserve things in the ancient th- world. When I think of knowledge of like old knowledge, yeah. like here's some old knowledge. People pretty much without fail believed that the earth, circled around, I'm sorry, people without fail believe that the sun circled around the earth. Yeah. It's old information, it's old knowledge. I'm trying to see how that, just because it's old, what does that give us, right? Well, I mean, you find it in Joshua, right? Actually, that's reflected even in Joshua, but I mean, I think it gives us a perspective of the ancients, but I don't even think, that's not even the most important part of that story from Joshua. The, that story from Joshua is trying to say he's trying to show Joshua you can you can trust um, you can trust in me you know that's what the Lord's selling to him regarding let's say the ancient Israelites yeah which is not my expertise oh sure uh, (laughs) so the ancient I mean if you want to go let's let's go with Greco-Roman people (laughs) Greco-Roman people let's say magically as a thought experiment we could flash a hundred Greco-Roman individuals from back then mm-hmm. to now, <laughs> right? And at the same time, transport a hundred people from where yeah. we live now back then. Yeah. At the end of a week, mm-hmm. would they have more to gain from our knowledge or would we have more to gain from their knowledge? I think it's, I think it can go both ways. I mean, <laughs> I kind of laugh and I'm like, all the women are going to want to come back because... It just does not seem to me that it was awesome to live as a woman in the ancient world. But I think you have things to learn both ways. Um, and this is something, I mean, even bringing it back to Christianity, that, that so again, bringing it back to Caleb. So Caleb focuses on Christian expression in the global South. And he's like, there's ways of their, how they experience who God is that people in the Northern and Northern hemispheres just don't, don't see. So that there is, it's just not even on their radar. So I think, I think knowledge, I I just, I didn't quite follow that last point. (laughs) So like how Christianity even today is expressed in different areas. Okay. Right. That arguably your context determines what you think truth is and how you're going to identify truth and interact with truth or who, or God or whatever. Um, And so you're helped by your context, but you're also limited by it. So if, if I have something to learn from every place that I would go. And not just something to teach. So I, I do think that there would be absolutely things to learn going back to the 
to the first century and trying to understand how they see um, the world around them and how they see how they interact with space and what they think disease is, what they think inspiration is, because it's a whole different way of looking at the world. I don't think we have it all figured out now and just those stupid ancient people didn't. I think there's been gains and losses. And I fully expect people who are living 200 years from now look at how we're living and think that we're absolutely crazy and barbarians and who knows what they think, right? Yeah, on certain things. I wonder, though, I mean, we're maybe post-postmodern now, but that's, you know, this kind of idea of getting away from this kind of Darwinistic thinking that we're always improving. And so everybody who's before us is therefore lesser. And that gets to the crux of why I do this show, Mm -hmm. is that we seem to live in a time, and if you think differently, please let me know, But my premise is that we live in a time where people have wildly different beliefs. Yeah. And for some reason, Mm -hmm. it seems to be getting us in our present moment into trouble. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I think so. I think it's always gotten people into trouble. But And maybe this is a stretch. Um, We have more time to think about what we believe now than people did even a hundred years ago, because even if I can think back to my, my grandparents, so that's not a hundred years, but what they're doing in the summer versus what my kids are doing in the summer. You know, my grandma grew up on a farm, so she's helping out with the chores all the time. She has strict things that she's supposed to do throughout the day to contribute to her household. Most people, if you jump back to the first century, most people are at they're just trying to get by on a daily basis. They're, so they don't have time to be like, who do I think God is and how do I know that God is real? They're just like, I got to survive. The reason why us having wildly different beliefs and those beliefs are getting us into trouble is that in the past, we didn't have time to worry about <laughs> such things. And this is a luxury of living in a modern society. Yeah, and you have Facebook and whatever, and you can get into an echo chamber. And back when, who or what God was, I got to milk the cows. Right. And the other thing is, like, religion is more or less a contemporary construct, because ancients don't think in terms of religion. You don't choose the gods you worship. You worship the gods that you're born worshiping. So whoever's in charge of your household, they said, these are our gods. You say, okay. Do we do that? Some In some ways, yeah. And that's sometimes for... For students, especially students who really thrive in the church and feel called to go in ministry, sometimes that's why seminary can be so hard is because they realize, oh, I have been doing that. And then in a divinity school or seminary context, we're like, okay, well, now you need to figure out what you believe and why. And so that can be a really challenging thing. Is it okay to challenge one's beliefs? Question your own beliefs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm an academic, so I do that all the time. Um, And that's probably what, you know, my answers are going to be more wishy-washy than other people. Because if I'm honest, which with myself, which is, I think, a key component to being a scholar, then everything has to be on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of saying, well, I've already decided this, so I can't really explore those questions. Well, that's not that's Well, and that's why I asked you, are there things that you believe that, for some reason, if they were incorrect, not saying they're incorrect, but if they were incorrect, would you be able to know that they were incorrect? 
Well, I think that's why I would, I would put them up against, for me, the what I'm calling the love hermeneutic. So, Meaning that looking at things through the lens of what love is or does this provide love? Um, I would say, like, valuing other people as people, as having inherent worth. I see. Instead of <laughs> telling them they have to live a certain way first. Yeah. And I see that. I get that. And, for example, there's the golden rule. Right. Do unto others. Right. And sometimes I ask myself, seems like a pretty good thing to live by. If I added another text or another book, or what am I gaining from that that's not giving me? Is there a good special sauce that I'm not getting from that, that one tenet? you got to get examples, right? That's one of the big connections between the Old and the New Testament and, like, the literature that's of the Second Temple period that's, you know, bridging and going in between the two Testaments is that they consistently, Jewish first century Jews, consistently emphasize that the two most important tenets of their faith is to love God and to love neighbor, right? And that's also what Jesus says. The thing that, that gets Jesus in trouble is he says, this is what love looks like. So, yeah, I think the special sauce is in is getting into the particulars. Well, like, what does it mean to love another like you love yourself? Like, Peter's like, well, you know, we've walked out on our families and we did this. And Jesus is like, you'll, you know, you'll get so many more families in heaven. Or Peter's like, well, should I forgive my brother seven times? I mean, that's pretty good. And he's like, no, seven times, 77 times or whatever. So that it's... So we've improved on that central Thing. I think I think there's attempts to. I don't know that they'd all be like. I don't think Peter standing up and saying I abandoned my family. Like I would look at that very differently than I think Matthew's community or Mark's community did. But I always wonder. I'm like, God, what is Peter's wife doing? <laughs> well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't tell you uh, how much. We speak with comedian Jeremy Alder, discovered at jeremyalder.com, as he discusses increasing self-awareness through understanding how personal desires drive beliefs, coming up after this short break. Sunlit day 
walk around with a confirmation bias, that we have something that we believe is true. And then through that lens, we see the world. We try to assimilate the world into that belief. Yeah. And I think that's just the inescapable human condition that goes for everybody at some level. And I've had conversations like this before, but I've never had a conversation like this before, I think, with someone who went to divinity school. You know, my interests at the time when I went into divinity school were understanding the intersection of uh, religious belief and scientific belief. And uh, my background as an undergraduate, I studied biology and philosophy and was really interested in the history and philosophy of science and religion. And having grown up in a religious home, you know, the question of belief was always on the table. It was those questions that kind of led me to want to go to divinity school and think more deeply about those things. So, In your personal experience, did you have a religious belief first regarding what brought you to divinity school? Or do you think that you had developed thoughts first and then developed the belief after those thoughts in a logical manner for you? Oh, no. I think I, I, think I, I basically accepted the beliefs of my family and my church. And I just kind of accepted those as the way the world was, because that's what you do when you're a kid. I feel like my beliefs have been in a pretty constant state of transformation and evolution since I was a teenager. And that includes from the time I went to divinity school until now. I think a lot of times what really will change a belief is an encounter with an experience or an encounter with reality or with a person, a relationship. So what was it for you? What was the person, the event that obviously something yeah. changed you? I think it was a couple of things. When I came out of seminary, I started working as a community organizer for a faith-based community organizing group in San Antonio. At the same time, had our we had our fourth child while I was doing that job. And I found that I simply couldn't live the life of a community organizer, which was just long, weird hours and um, also didn't pay very well. And so I needed to do something else. It was a path of necessity. It was just, it was just pure necessity, yeah. economic necessity. 
the second thing that happened was I got a, I was, I got divorced hmm. six years ago. And, uh, that kind of sent me into a, a, a personal existential crisis. And I think a spiritual hmm. crisis that had me rethinking a lot of things, including my very deeply held beliefs about marriage and relationships and what constituted family or a good family. Your belief is, is that people have beliefs that are based more how they want to see the world, basically, than how maybe the world is. In this situation, what was it that you weren't seeing correctly about the world that butted in? Hmm. That's a good question. I like the way you put that. Um, I think what butted in was the realization that I had limits, physical and emotional and psychological limits, that the relationship that I was in at the time had pushed me to the brink of. I see. And uh, I felt like I literally couldn't continue. Uh, like I felt like I was having like physical symptoms and uh, pretty deep depression and um, just uh, a lot of anxiety and things that were very unusual for me. It was very, it was very, I had never felt anything like that before. Um, it was very disorienting too. The end of a marriage does not mean the end of either being a family or being a good person yeah. or being a good dad. Sure. Or the end of a good childhood for your kids. I think I had all of these ideas that I was brought up in that to end a marriage is is really uh you know, to to throw yourself into the into the void. And I realized none of that was true. Many people in your situation, possibly, who went to seminary school, I could see this scenario making somebody more religious and more entrenched in certain beliefs as opposed to changing those beliefs. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, I don't think that all of a sudden everything I believed changed overnight, but I yeah. think certain ways of understanding. What would the concept of knowing that you have limits, how would that affect your belief system? I'm trying to, I'm just trying to understand. How we see ourselves um, is a major part of how we view the world. So your complete conception of yourself was changing during this yeah. negative event. Yeah. And so while everything else was changing, everything else gets thrown in the mix as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things that changed is, um, or has changed, is I no longer view it as a negative event. I view it as a positive and liberating event. At right. the time, it felt like a negative sure. event. Sure, sure. But that's one of my beliefs that has changed with uh, having gone through that experience now. And looking back on it, I realized well, that wasn't, there really wasn't a negative. That needed to happen, and it was good that it did. Someone sitting next to you, and they have a belief system and uh, it's working for them. And they ask, they ask you why you may be right, 
that my beliefs really drive my personal desires, why, what's the difference? Why should that matter to me if that's how I live my life? One way, having kind of come to this conclusion about our desires really driving our beliefs, it's made me more aware of what in the world is shaping my desires. What kinds of influences are determining what I want? And to view, I'm able, I think, to see the world with a little more of a critical and aware lens. Um, And then hopefully pass that on to my kids to be more aware because there's, we're in this constant battle for our attention and our desires in this world. I mean, just bombarded with advertisements, for example, that are constantly trying to incite us Mm -hmm. to want certain things, to be a certain type of person. And um, if we go through the world just kind of unaware of these things, then we end up basically being controlled by them because we can't even see them. So you're saying in the sense that we are free, it's really in knowing how we are influenced by... Yeah, because I think when you're aware of that, you can then, you can be, you can start to make choices, right? About what you allow to shape your desires or shape the desires of your children, right? Do we make choices? (laughs) Sure feels like it. It feels like it. I mean, in an ultimate sense, do we? I don't know. I don't know if that's noble, but I mean, we certainly, I think, have to live as if we do. Yeah. In order to get up in the morning. Or maybe not. Maybe we would get up anyway. (laughs) Wouldn't have a choice. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. Enjoy the funk.